Hello and welcome to Lady Justice Women of the Court podcast. In this episode, in honor of the Institute for Wellbeing in Law, Lawyer Wellbeing Week, the Lady Justices will discuss their judicial research and how it ties into attorney well-being. Justice Wood breaks down her recently published articles on the work habits of Supreme Court Justices, pre- and post-pandemic. She co-wrote See How We Read with her law clerk, Brian Johnston, in The Green Bag, an entertaining journal of law. Their survey focused on how appellate judges work, which led to a deeper insight into the importance of interpersonal connection and taking special care of the mind and the body. The Arkansas Supreme Court Task Force on Lawyer Wellbeing defines lawyer well-being as a continuous process in which lawyers strive to flourish in each dimension of their lives emotional, social, intellectual, spiritual, physical, and occupational. Our Lady Justices each share their unique approach in their respective positions to foster proactive support for change in lawyer well-being. Finally, in the lightning round, the Lady Justices share what advice they would give to their 25-year-old self to have better well-being if they had to spend one week working in a fast food restaurant, which would it be? and if their bets were made. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Welcome to Lady Justice Women of the Court. I'm Rhonda Wood, a justice on the Arkansas Supreme Court, and I'm joined by my friends Beth Walker, Chief Justice of the West Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals, and Bridget McCormick, a former Chief Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court, and now a current CEO of the American Arbitration Association. Beth and Bridget, how are both of you doing? I'm already through as we're as we are recording this. I am already a quarter through my my second one year stint as Chief Justice, and it is going really well. And in a small world moment, last night I actually was attending our West Virginia State Mar- Bar meeting, and I got to meet Margaret Dobson, uh, Justice Wood, who is president elect of the Arkansas. Bar Association, who was in West Virginia for our state bar meeting. So uh, that was kind of fun to get to meet someone you knew. Yeah. Or no. And we were law school classmates. I don't know if she told you that. She did. She did. So <laughs> that's that was a fun small world moment. Yeah. Bridget, how's your new job? It's going well. Thank you. I need a few more hours in every day, but but it's super interesting and I love the people I work with and it's, it's going really well. I, I just got my power back on today. We've had power outages nonstop in Michigan. Here's the only like thing that's not going great. We had a power outage for a week, a couple of weeks ago. That is a long time. And we have a backup generator, but it failed on the second day and still hasn't been fixed. But this weekend, the power went out, and because the ground is no longer frozen, our and we're on well water, our sump pump started. You know, really, we we had a yeah, we had a really big problem, and our basement is finished. It's it's a big part of our house. My husband's office is down there, so my husband's like bailing the water with buckets, and I'm like, that's not going to work for very long. You know, that's just not going to work. Then we got really smart, and we have an electric F-150. We drove it across the lawn to the side of the house. And we ran an extension cord from the sump pump to the F-150 and left the F-150 running all weekend in the side yard and our basement did not flood. So I would like you all to, you know, congratulate us for our being so being so smart about that. 
that is very like MacGyver-ish. Wasn't it? I know. I was <laughs> that I was that impressed. is totally that is a total West Virginia solution as well. Right? Because everybody <laughs> has a, a pickup truck. And that is exactly what you should have done. I'm so proud of you. Yeah. Yep. Arkansas, <laughs> likewise, we're very impressed with that. Yeah, I thought so. so. Except we would be like, what's a basement? Yeah. <laughs> Except so here's a real question. So if it's an electric truck, so how did you did it just keep its charge the whole time? Was it is it like a giant battery on wheels for these purposes? Yeah, these, the electric truck is basically like the electric cars. It's basically just a big battery with a with a shell around it. I mean, it's like your it's like your cell phone, but the battery takes up the whole bottom of the truck. And we used very little charge. In fact, we learned that there's a some kind of converter which we do not own, but we will own for the next episode of Ann Arbor Alone, season three. But we, but but you can get a converter and you can actually power your whole house for three days off the F one fifty electric. So we will have that for the next episode of this of this show. I feel like we've gone to selling cars now. <laughs> I know. Sorry, I didn't mean to. I, I was just so. Proud oh, no, of you can sell cars now if you want. Yeah, you are seriously. not. You can do anything. Encumbered. You would not believe what I can do. So <laughs> this is really fascinating. <laughs> actually, I'm we're really gonna learn. We're gonna learn more things. I, I think we're gonna learn even more things. This is great. Uh, yeah, I'll have more to tell, but for today, well, it's my MacGyver story. Well, we're glad that you're doing well and impressed, but today we're going to discuss what I find interesting and that you guys think is really geeky probably, but how we work, and Bridget and Beth both know that I love to study how we work, especially as in the pellet world, and so because of that, I'm shamelessly promoting a couple articles that I co-wrote with one of my law um, clerks. And for those of you that are unfamiliar with The Green Bag, um, it is an entertaining journal of law. And I always say that because it's not an entertainment law journal. And there's a different. And so it's a warning for those of you that go read um, either of these articles, and we'll put a link up. They're very tongue-in-cheek. Um, I will tell you that when I wrote the first one and did the draft and sent it to my law clerk, he was like, I don't think this is the right tone. <laughs> I was like, oh no, I'm sending it to the green bag. It'll be fine. <laughs> um, and so you have to sort of know the law, the journal to understand that. So the premise was that when we had breaks, we would sit in my office with my law clerks and my assistant. And we always talked about how we worked and I'm always trying to make it more effective and efficient and how other chambers did it and how I knew other judges did it. And then when I'd go to conferences, visiting with both of you um, and meet other justices, I would always come back and tell them, hey, I heard West Virginia does this, or you know, Michigan did this, or another judge did this. And I was always fascinated by it. And also because I always felt like I was a weird one out on my court in a lot of ways. And so I decided to sort of as we always sat around talking about things to like, you know, why not just survey and see if I can get people to respond? Let's survey justices and see how they work and if they do things like me or like other people. And so anyway, um, that's what we did. And so it just so happened that we sent out the survey in early of 2020. And so it was captured that moment in time, right, sort of pre-pandemic because I think it closed at the end of right in March. And so we thought the results were interesting. We wrote an article and published it in the green bag. 
And then in conversations with them, they talked to us about resurveying everyone and we were interested to see what changed sort of post-pandemic, if we're allowed to say that, I guess, but I do. So we surveyed everyone again and then published sort of a follow-up article. So my first question is, honestly, Beth and Bridget, did you guys answer the survey? Of course we did. I mean, I absolutely did. I don't know about Beth. <laughs> what survey? No, um, I, I am certain that I respond to the second <laughs> survey. I am pretty sure I respond to the first survey because that was before the pandemic. So we don't know and some right. of that history. We will never recover. But <laughs> I, now if it, I'm sure through AI, you know exactly what the answer to this question is. So you were just asking it to be polite. Yeah. No, honestly, it really is anonymous. So I don't know. And so I don't even know if my colleagues, you know, on my own court answered it. So I really don't know. So you could tell me anything you wanted. But as I'm kidding, I am saying that in a way that I'm really grateful because both of those surveys would not have happened um, without y'all because I know I specifically reached out to you guys and said, please send them out across the country and encourage your fellow justices. And both of you had connections with the chief justices across the sort of country. So I say that to be grateful, even though I was teasing you, that I really am thankful for your help with this. So one of the- All kidding aside, it's it's before you go on, it is really cool. You, You call yourself a geek, but I mean, this is interesting. And I think there, you know, you've done it in sort of a tongue in cheek kind of entertainment yes. way. But this whole idea of how we get work done, I think yeah. is really, really interesting. So don't sell yourself too short okay. there. Well, thank you. I find it interesting. So one of the questions we asked was whether you both times is whether justices read briefs in the order they were written. And again, most of these conversations came up as part of my staff, because at one random point in time, I mentioned that I didn't read it in order and they thought I was kind of nutty. And they were like, well, what order did you read it in? And I said, I think it was because of coming from the trial bench is that I would always sort of read the points on appeal and then jump and read the record and then come back and sort of read the argument. So sort of tell me what the issue is on appeal. And then I want to go read that in the record first, just sort of see it in black and white, what happened, and then come back. That's saying that it's a factual kind of issue, you know, sometimes it's, you know, more questions of law and pure, but anyway, so in 2020, 71% responded that they read it in order. And then now um, that number decreased to 66%. So I don't know if that's random, you know, and just how we survey people or if there's something different going on that people have changed and are reading things out of order. So I guess my question first, Beth, is do you read briefs in order or do you jump around? So I read briefs primarily electronically. And so it usually, at least the first time, usually, you know, whatever it is in order. I mean, it just, um, if I am going, and now I'm going to have a big asterisk on this because I'm going to break some news here, but I do not read every brief in every single case. I'm just going to say, I will have to be reported to the justices like negligence committee or something. But if, if briefs are terrible and unfortunately they occasionally are, I, it is a far wiser use of my time to read the 
really well-written memo that one of my lawyers has written for me, one of my law clerks, as opposed to waiting through the briefs myself. Do I read the briefs? Yes. Most of the time, I'd say half the time, maybe, mm -hmm. um, because we have a lot of cases. And But when I read them, I read them in order. So I guess to, answer, to stick your question, counselor, make her answer the question. The answer is in order. And my clerks read them in order the first time through. But there are times when I go back and look at a brief because I want to see what they said about a specific issue. And that's when you start jumping around. So Bridget, what was your practice? Uh, you know, I think I read them in order, I don't know, half the time. I, I honestly, it, and I think I'm kind of in Beth's camp here. I mean, if, if a brief, the first one especially, just made me more confused than if I hadn't even started reading, I would go start somewhere else. Oftentimes I'd go back to the Court of Appeals opinion that was being appealed to try and see if I could figure out at least from that opinion what the issue should be, <laughs> whether or not they were um, the, and then I would, you know, try and refresh myself with any earlier memos from my court when we conferenced the case, and then I might go back to the briefs. On the other hand, if the briefs were really well written, reading them in order actually works well for me, but it really depended on the quality of the briefs, how I would attack the work. And every once in a while, everything was so muddled, like the briefs, the court of appeals opinion, the record, that I was desperately hoping my clerk was able to make something sensible out of it in a memo and I might even start there. So I really, you know, attacked each case in the way I could best get through it. I mean, there's times where I've read the Apple brief first, that when I see sort of what's the issue on appeal, then that, but I always want to read, I guess maybe it is that prior experience. I want to read what the court below me or whether it's a trial judge or intermediate court wrote first uh, and sort of want to see that and then kind of then move to the attack of that if there is one. But I, and I will tell you this, I rarely read since we're doing confession hour, <laughs> I rarely read the statement of the case. And I, at the AGI, I had an attorney, attorney and I went round and round about this. And he's like, we spend so much time on the statement of the case. And they wanted to do a whole session on the statement of the case. And I was like, well, what about if those of us that, like, why do I want the statement of the case if I have the record? So anyway very rare um, and weird confessions. So um, I was happy that the survey results shown that I was not alone in not reading things in order. And so my law clerks, you know, couldn't think I was quite so nutty. So another thing that I we did notice a shift of sort of from 2020 to 2022 was the number that reported they circulated a draft memo before a case conference. And this was in response to the question of always, do you always circulate it? And so it was 9.5% that always circulated it in 2020. And then it jumped up to like almost 22%. And that seemed that that couldn't be just sort of an anomaly of how, who we were, you know, surveying and respondents, that there has to be a shift going on to go from sort of nine and a half to almost 22%. So Bridget, what about how you worked in Michigan or? So I I need to make sure I understand the question. So when you say a circulated draft memo, do you mean a, a, a justice who had who was assigned writing authority? Or like who circulates the memo and what's it about? Well, <laughs> I feel like I'm at an oral argument with you. Uh, <laughs> this is great. 
So, and I guess that's part of it is maybe everybody interpreted this differently, uh-huh. but it was a draft memo before the case conference does the court as a whole. As so a whole. like, so someone's assigned, someone's assigned to draft a memo for the court. So it's I, not, you know, do your law clerk sort of do it for your chambers. Yeah. Um, and when but, you're saying case conference, is this at the, at the time when you're going to decide the case or are you talking about, here we go. It's a, does your, here's the actual question. Does your court circulate a draft opinion or draft memo before conferencing a case? That's the official question. So I know that some courts, in fact, the Michigan Court of Appeals, they circulate draft opinions before the oral argument. Mm -hmm. I am on record as being vehemently opposed to that practice. Yes. Yes. We all know my, we know Bridget's view on that. Um, And in the Michigan Supreme Court, we never did that. And in fact, often changed our minds during oral argument or, you know, I think we've talked about this, but if not during oral argument, maybe during the the conversation amongst the justices afterward, you know, somebody Mm. flagged something that hadn't occurred to me, or there's a preservation problem that I wasn't focused on, or, you know, I don't know, something like that. So, so we never circulated draft opinion in the Michigan Supreme Court. And before we conference the case, which happens long before the oral argument, because it's a conference where we decide to have an oral argument, oftentimes we circulated memos, sometimes more than one of us. If we found something interesting about the case, we wanted to make sure everybody thought about before coming to conference, I might circulate a memo. Somebody might respond to that memo and say, that, that's pretty interesting, but I think you might be you know, mixing up this and that. And it, it, it's actually a good way, or I found it to be a good way to air some of the issues in advance of a conference where you have, you know, lots of lots of items on your agenda and you worry that you might not get someone's attention. So a different answer for me for oral argument and mm-hmm. the earlier conference. Right. right. How about you, Beth? So uh, focusing on sort of the conference where we're going to decide a case after oral argument. We do not. uh, I'm in the Bridget McCormick camp on this. I don't think draft opinions should be circulated before the argument, and they do not get circulated before the decision conference, which normally takes place that same week. You know, we'll have, for example, this week, two arguments on Tuesday, arguments on Wednesday, decision conference on Thursday. There won't be anything circulated for those cases. Um, I did have a colleague early on who liked to draft the opinion in advance. I don't think it was particularly productive activity. But that said, we do have conversations about the case after the arguments. We might, particularly with, obviously internally, but you know, if I think this is an important enough issue before we sit down and decide it, I may go to somebody and uh, talk about it, but there's no memo circulated. So we've talked about doing that. And really the question was sort of more focused on the these draft opinions. And a lot of courts do that. And I just feel like the decision's probably already made then at that point. And we do the conferencing the same day as oral argument. So it, I think we're more similar, you know, back to how you did it. But so I've been sort of vehemently, we're all three in the same camp of that. I think it's sort of you know, you've pre-decided the case. And I think then that to me, I would think that justice would be less inclined to ever move off their position if sort of gone to that level. So, yeah, but I just, it seemed like a big jump in the response. And I don't know if COVID has changed. And partly I wondered if it was in response to, we also more conferencing virtually and they feel like having that draft is making makes it better. I don't know if that's 
makes me want to go out and talk to everybody more. <laughs> well, I think, and I want to encourage you to do that because I think judging from conversations I've had, I think this is a really big issue. We're going to talk about it here in a minute, but you know, this whole court's not, you know, everyone sort of got comfortable with, you know, the post COVID lifestyle of not coming to the capital city in the state, you know, in person and doing all of this virtually. And, you know, I'm not sure. I think it, it's different when you do it that way. Yeah. And so that's sort of the last, you know, there were lots of questions, but one of the last I wanted to focus on is we added a new question, you know, in the last go around and, and we did it open-ended. So we didn't suggest an answer, but it was, what was COVID's the greatest impact on your appellate court work? And because everything was really about, we asked a lot about tech, about do you read electronically or not and how you read, that we really thought it was mainly going to be about virtual conferencing and that sort of thing. But I was startled by the number of people that responded with the concern about interpersonal reactions and sort of interplay. And as a stat person, I'm going to disclose up front that if anybody reads it, the percentages don't equal 100 because some people wrote more than one, but we just threw the question out there and said, you know, tell us. And so a lot of people did, of course, write that it changed because they were able to do this remote work and appellate courts. You know, we've talked about that a lot in podcast about, you know, the justice system was always slow to change, but we quickly you know, had to adapt to that. But here's where, here were some of the examples of what people wrote, and these are their quotes. Altered conference dynamics, personal relationship with colleagues and staff lacking, affected relationship building, reduced collegiality, loss of interpersonal contact. So those were some of the responses. And so I'm really curious for both of you what your thoughts were on this. So Bridget, you know, you being on the court, but also in this new role, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's such an important topic. And I actually think there are different applications of it that probably have different answers. You know, the thing about a multi-member court is you make every decision by committee. And that means that relationships are really important, right? Because the, the way in which you talk to your colleagues today about this decision will matter tomorrow when you have a different decision that you're all making by committee. And so I do think relationships are important and figuring out how to maintain relationships when you don't see each other in person isn't easy, or at least it isn't easy for people of my generation. I can put it that way. I mean, I'm sure my 20 something kids would say like, oh God, mom, you know, get a grip. But I do think for, you know, a lot of aging appellate courts, it changed dynamics and that did have some, it, it probably had some costs. Obviously it's a different question when it comes to how courts use remote technology in um, trial proceedings. Um, and that, uh, that too, there were there were big debates about among judges and when we were coming out of the pandemic. What should we keep doing remotely? What do, what should we never do remotely? People had really strong opinions. Not very many of them were based on data. I have an article coming out in Litigation Magazine called "Why Do Judges and Lawyers Hate Evidence?" I do. I really do. That's um, a great title. Yeah. It's yes. Great. But one of the big advantages in my new role is we respond to market pressure. So if the parties want remote proceedings because they save their clients money, we do remote proceedings. If they want hybrid proceedings because they think the arguments should be in person, but they're not going to fly that witness across the ocean because that doesn't make any sense, we do hybrid proceedings. If they want in-person proceedings, we do in-person proceedings. So we give the customers what they want. And that's like a really wonderful 
advantage to what I do now. It's I found that a little bit harder in the context of making rules for trial courts when judges had real strong feelings about the way things should be, and they weren't necessarily about what was best for the litigants. No offense, judges. I love judges, but yeah. No, that's absolutely true. So I guess my answer, at least specific to our court, is you know, we only were remote for about two months. And then in the fall of 2020, we went back to live oral arguments, which meant that we were all coming in and doing things mostly in person again. So I was actually really grateful that it worked out that way for us. I mean, you know, it's a small, I, for whatever reason, it's just what we did in West Virginia. So the best thing about sort of the ongoing development of our newer court, which are, you know, sort of since 2018, is that our relationships have actually gotten stronger, I feel like, and our collegiality has gone up. And I don't know if if that's just the composition of the court right now, um, but I, I'm not sure that would, ha- would have happened if we were doing quite a bit remote still. So I think while I have no causal analysis, no, no valid statistical data, I'm pretty sure that we're better off being together personally. You know, we're even our, the design, you all got to visit the Supreme Court in West Virginia. Our offices are sitting in a hallway across from each other. We literally can't do anything without running into each other and talking and interacting. And um, I think there's some value to that. So that's my observation. Rhonda, what about you? Yeah. So I think, I mean, it's definitely, I think it's an issue. And, you know, part of what I wrote in the article is I think if, you know, we make really difficult decisions. And as Bridget said, by committee. And if you're sort of really frustrated, it's really easy just to, at the end of deciding all these really hard cases and to be frustrated to hit the little red and call, you know, and Zoom thing. But it's a little bit different when you wrap up conference and you put your papers away and then you're sort of sitting around the table, walking out the door, asking about their, your kids and, and sort of chatting as you walk down the hall. And I, I just think that that's, it's different. And so, you know, we've been back for a while, but there are some, you know, reasons that not all of us are able to be back. And so I think, you know, and I talking to other justices around the country, there's a lot of them that just the courts have chose not, chosen not to come back. And that was one of the things we asked in the survey is how many were actually still operating remotely. And a lot of them are now that they've just sort of gone to that, at, you know, either for all administrative or for all, you know, they're doing oral arguments live, but they're doing other case conference and administrative conferences virtually. And so it's really torn me because I'm such a big proponent of technology and have always pushed, push, push tech. But I just think we have to, from a well-being and especially on a collegial court, have to really pay attention to that. And so I'm kind of wrapping up part of that by talking about, I, I mentioned in there this water cooler issue in the article. And it's, as we were, I was writing this with my clerks during COVID, I had a water cooler in my office. And the way our offices are aligned is each justice has like a mini suite And so our assistant and our two law clerks are all in this contained suite. So we're like this mini, it really is like a chambers, you know, it's like a mini chambers. So we don't have our have to leave. We have our own bathroom in there, like kitchenette, everything. And so I'd always paid for a water cooler. So we even, you know, 
constantly we're drinking, we're real healthy and try to drink water and whatnot all day long. And during COVID, the water cooler broke and I just never spent the money to replace it. And so we were, we, when we came back, we were walking down the hall to the break break room and filling water. And so we had this internal debate about, well, they were like, Justice, what are you going to buy us a new water cooler, <laughs> you know? And I was like, well, I don't know, because when we walk down the hall, we're actually interacting now with people and seeing each other. And so it's like, I want to encourage health and drinking water, but at the same time, I want to encourage that, you know, interaction. So that was part of what came out of this. So I, we ended up buying a water cooler, but we, you know, I agreed that, but we agreed that we were going to still walk out and actually leave our office more and try to walk around and, and visit. So a little bit of both, but the reason I also sort of move into this is because, and Beth is a big proponent of this, is it is upcoming on Lawyer Wellbeing Week. And Beth has been just a sort of a national proponent of this. And so, Beth, I was going to ask you to say something about Lawyer Wellbeing and what that's meant for you. And that's coming up the first week of May. Yes. Yeah, so um, every year, the Institute for Wellbeing in Law, I think this is the third year, so it's becoming a tradition, um, has sort of a online celebration of Wellbeing Week in the law. And if uh, any lawyers who are listening can Google that phrase or go to the Institute for Wellbeing in Law, and there will be programs for each day. Now, some of them are free and some of them are free to um, American Bar Association members. So there's various ways to get to it, but they're essentially promoting lawyers thinking about their own well-being. And I think this is obviously I've talked about before. It's such an it remains an incredible, incredibly important topic. And I think we're now as the conversation continues, you know, it started out as a quick, very fast review concerns about the high instances of substance abuse and mental health concerns in our profession higher than in other professions. So what do we do about it? And now, you know, the conversation is slightly less stigmatized. And I think people are talking more freely about what do they do to, you know, combat this sort of these, these issues when they come up or prevent them in the first place. And going back to your question about, you know, post pandemic and remote workplaces, you know, this isolation that judges talk about a lot, you know, especially trial judges who work solos, we have the good fortune of working in a group, which can be great, but also challenging, but it's mostly great because you're connecting with people all the time. Trial judges, not so much, you know, they're by themselves for in this isolation. So whether it's judges or now lawyers, many parts of the country, they are not back to work in law firms. Many law firms have, decide, have determined that it's cheaper uh, to keep people at home. But I had a very lively conversation just a couple of days ago with a, a well-established partner in a large regional law firm here in West Virginia. And she does not want to come back to work. She's got her practice. It's established. She works at home. She manages it. And I pushed her a little in challenge. I said, well, who's going to mentor the new lawyers? Um, you know, how... I don't know how you teach people if you're a mentor or how you learn sort of the soft skills, the finer points of practicing law when you're sitting in your home all day. So I, from the well-being of our profession and tying this all back together, yay for well-being week in law, but also, you know, I'm not sure where we're going with this, you know, keeping people isolated. I don't know, Bridget or Rhonda, if you want to comment on that particular thing, it worries me a little bit. 
It's huge. It's, I mean, it's, it's an enormous issue. It's, I mean, I have like a whole set of experiments going that we're collecting data about across my, you know, my organization has 28 offices across the United States and one in Singapore. And we have different teams that do different things. So they have different needs for being in person and not. And uh, they all cross generations and the generations have different views about how they can engage well in different settings. And I realize that the leaders of my organization, like many organizations, are usually my generation or older. And so our views are a little skewed in one direction. So I really want to figure out how to be best in class in what I'm calling the future of work, the workforce of the future. And so we literally are running, I think, 12 different experiments from fully remote to in-person core days to in-person a week, a quarter, um, and, and just collecting a bunch of data about how it all goes in terms of engagement and culture and training to figure out um, what the best way is for this organization to remain healthy and, um, and be able to continue to serve our customers. So I don't think anyone's going to know the answers to all of this for a while. And therefore, while there's lots of other research coming out, I figure I may as well contribute to it. I think that's going to be really interesting if you can get the data to see how that works out. I've been really interested in my, you know, we talk about the younger generation. My son um, switched firms and went to, I guess, more of a national or international firm. But he's, there's, they only have two lawyers in Arkansas. And so he's at home most of the time, except like one or two days a week. But he's trying to build relationships with these attorneys in all the other states. And it's just been fascinating. So I, I think he thinks I'm like overbearing mother, but it's because I'm interested in how we work. So I was like, well, how do you meet them? Well, how do you interact? How do they send you projects? Like, how does this work when you're not, you know, running down the hall to develop that, you know, partner associate relationship? So for him, it's like, this is obvious. Why are you asking me these questions? <laughs> you know, But I think for me, I'm like, I guess it's what you're used to. So so that's where I want to kind of move on to is I'm going to ask you guys another last question, kind of tying all this in is, and I feel like I learn a lot from both of you, is I'm curious if we could go back to our, you know, early lawyer selves and 25 or so year old selves or early on in the practice of law is what advice would you give yourself to sort of have better well-being? So Beth, do you want... Sure. So of course, the first thing that came to mind and is a little tongue in cheek, I would tell my 25 year old self, don't get married. So that we'll, we'll just get that off the table. Um, because that didn't work out well for me, but it works out well for others. So I would have told myself that had I had the presence of mind. But now I am uh, two thirds of the way through my latest well-being hobby book, which is How or Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. I may have mentioned that before because I've checked it out before, but I am now getting through it. And I would tell my 25-year-old self to get eight hours of sleep every night. The science is astounding on sleep. And we have such a culture of, we stayed up all night and we're a great lawyer and it's just wrong. And so that's what I would tell myself. That's super good advice. I've read a lot of that research as well. And it's stunning how many parts of your physical and mental health are impacted by not enough sleep and that not enough sleep is defined pretty aggressively. Like I used to think like, I got a six hour sleep, I'm doing great and not so much according to the research. So I would take that advice for my younger self. I think I would also uh, tell myself to take some 
real, some real time away from work, like real shutdown time. I, I'm not, I guess we could tell that this to my current self as well. So maybe my 56 year old self needs the same advice, but, but I've come, I've also come to be persuaded by the organizations that find like shutting down across the organization brings all kinds of benefits to not just the individuals within it, but also the organization and idea flow and all this like really good research on that. I, but even to the extent I can't control that as a 25 year old brand new staff attorney at the Legal Aid Society, finding time to like really get away from work is not something I, I was ever good at as a younger person. And I think it is better for you. It's better for your kids. It's better for your spouse and your relationships. So shut down. Yeah. So I'm, I think I'm a little bit along that line, Bridget, is that I would tell myself to slow down uh, back then. I feel like when I look back that I had this sense of urgency and that that everything seemed urgent, if that makes sense. And, and sort of, I wish that I would have slowed down. And um, of course, I look back and think, well, it worked out well for me, but, you know, we did okay. But um, I, I think that I was, there was such this sort of urgency that I failed to appreciate moments um, in life, whether it's time with children and family or just even just time in the workforce that I look back now at those moments and go, those were great times that if I would have, you know, been able to slow down and appreciate them instead of sort of feeling this urgency, it felt, I don't know if that's a female thing that it felt like our careers were very urgent at that age in our twenties. And maybe that was a time of the, you know, sign of the times, I guess. But anyway, so yeah, stop and smell the roses. And then also to start working out earlier. I, I think I didn't work out well in my 20s. I totally ignored. I didn't work out and I ate terrible because I was so urgent. I was eating fast food and not working out. So I wish I would have started all that sooner. So so now we're going to go into the lightning round and we're going to start right where I left off, which was eating fast food. <laughs> and so um, if you had to work a week in a fast food restaurant, which would it be? And I guess we'll go Beth, Bridget, and then me. So fast food. So I actually did work at Ponderosa, Ponderosa restaurant when I was in high school, but that said, I would choose Chick-fil-A. Taco Bell, of course. Oh, <laughs> I said Chick-fil-A as well. Um, so... So the next question, and this probably goes into some of what we talked about, is, is your bed made right now? And the answer is resounding yes. It's the first thing I do. My brain just needs that little bit of order first thing in the morning. Yeah, me too. I can't really do anything else if it's not made. Like the other things don't, my brain doesn't work on the other things if the bed's not made. So, but I will tell you, since I travel a lot now for work, it's never made when I'm away. And my husband, who I'm sure is listening to me say this, will say to me, will you just tell me what time your flight lands? So I know to make the bed, you know, before you get here. So, yeah. So mine is made too. And I know there's been books written about, you know, people that make their bed in the mornings and whatnot, but and I make the bed. I even straighten it in a hotel room before they come and clean a room. And so, but yeah. I of course do. you do. Of course you do. <laughs> it's such an OCD thing. But yes, when I'm gone, I promise you my husband is not making the bed. I don't know about Mike Walker, but. <laughs> I know for a fact that the bed is not made when I am not home. And he's, and I'm okay with that. I mean, yeah. if I'm not there, Me I, it, it, it is totally I, up to him. Same. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> All right. If, what game show could you be on and win or be really good at? 
So I had this whole conflict because I, I don't even know like current game shows. Yeah. So I'm just going to go with a vintage game show and say, name that team. Yeah. I think I win that. I could win 25 words or less, but full disclosure, uh, my sister, it, my sister produces that show and she only had the idea because I introduced her to that game at my house. So I should be getting a cut of that. Are you not? No. <sighs> This seems like you could do a little action about that. You know a lawyer? Yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah, I think I think you need an entertainment lawyer, not an entertaining lawyer. Or maybe you could arbitrate, have someone come arbitrate that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so mine would be don't forget the lyrics. And I don't even know if it's still on anymore, but I tend to know can't always tell you the artist, but I know the lyrics to songs. So um, yeah. Anyway, so that's it. So that's it. And we are going to wrap up this episode of Lady Justice, Women of the Court. Thank you again for joining us. And we'll put some links to well-being and the articles on our website. And we hope that you slow down and enjoy life and have some well-being until the next episode. So thank you. Thanks for listening to Lady Justice, Women of the Court, the only podcast with one retired and two sitting state Supreme Court justices. To learn more about this podcast, access past episodes, or find links to our social media, visit ladyjusticepod.com. You can also record a voice message with a question or comment. Don't forget to subscribe and share our show with a friend of the genre. Remember, The opinions expressed on the program are the justices alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective courts. Until next time.